Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 86, Marco Polo, Part 1. A History of Italy is a chronological history from the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 to the current day, if we ever get here. Now the long-time listeners will be thinking, well, thank you very much, Mike. We hadn't quite grasped that over the last two and a half years and 85 episodes. You're quite right, of course. The message was more for people who are not following the podcast, but may have come across it out of interest in the figure of Marco Polo. So, welcome, old and new. Obviously, old is in the sense that have already been listening, not old people as in age, because I'm sure you're all wonderful and young, uh, whether at heart or in the flesh. If there was one thing that annoyed my father, it was the misappropriation of Italian cultural references. You could not watch an episode of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in his presence for long without triggering a rant about how kids would think that Michelangelo, Raffaello, Leonardo and Donatello were not Italian Renaissance artists but overgrown amphibious pets. He was also baffled by the swimming pool game Marco Polo. He would wonder out loud if the kids playing the game actually knew who Marco Polo was. I stayed very quiet these times because I also did not know who he was. I don't know if any of you outside of the USA are familiar with the game, so for the sake of satisfying your curiosity, let me fill you in. One player is it and has to tag another player so that they are it. The complication is that the person who is it inside the swimming pool must keep their eyes closed if they are out of the water and can only open them underwater. When they emerge, they supposedly keep their eyes closed and shout Marco, to which all those who are not it answer Polo, helping the person who is it to locate them. There seems to be no real historical connection between the swimming pool game and the historical figure of the late 13th century, early 14th century trader, explorer and civil servant of the Mongol Empire, Marco Polo. In other words, this whole intro was a big waste of time. Let me now take you back to Venice in the 13th century. Venice has always been something apart from the rest of Italy, like the other maritime republics, such as Pisa and Genoa, but Venice even more. The slowly fading landed feudal nobility looked with horror upon what they called the ignobilis mercatura, the scandalous trade. They would not stoop to being merchants. In Venice... From the highest power, the Dodger, to the lowest oarsman on a ship, everyone reveled in trade. Indeed, the oarsmen on a ship at this time were not slaves as they would be in later centuries, but free men who received a measly pay, but had the freedom 
to conduct their own business. A young Venetian would be born into trade, live it, breathe it, and be educated in it. A young Venetian would have had an in part different education from the traditional arts of the trivium, grammar, rhetoric, and debate, and the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. A young Venetian would have learned astronomy, but also geography and history. They would have learned some of the languages that were spoken in Venice and in its empire, which were Italian, obviously, a Venetian version of what was by now a vulgarized form of Latin, which would be a hard read, but would be recognizable by modern Italians. Then Byzantine Greek, and another lingua franca useful for those wishing to trade in the East, i.e. Persian. As is the case today, not everyone around then had a real knack for learning languages, and so you could find various copies of phrase books going around at the time, a series of phrase books regarding weights, measures, and all sorts of phrases that would be useful for a merchant. The maths that was studied towards the middle and end of the 13th century would have already been different from that of the previous century, still based on Roman numerals and calculated on an abacus. This was also thanks to the son of a merchant from Pisa, a man named Lorenzo Fibonacci. He had travelled in Muslim Africa and there he had discovered and brought back to Italy a new sequence of numbers with symbols from 1 to 9. Along with these nine positive numbers came another symbol. The concept came from the Sanskrit, and I hope my ancient Sanskrit is up to scratch here, sunva, meaning empty, which in Arabic became sifir, in Latin zephyrus, and finally in Italian zero. Therefore, whenever you say zero, you are speaking Italian. So, pat yourself on the back for knowing a bit of Italian. Anyway, education in Venice would have included a lot of maths for prices, exchanges with different currencies, and percentages, and so on. One example of that would be the need to calculate percentages in case of a colleganza. You could say this was a sort of medieval joint venture. When a business venture was too expensive for one group or family, as was often the case, various groups would pitch in together with the understanding that they would each get back their capital plus 5% of the profits from the venture. All of this wheeling and dealing and trading and travelling by the Venetian menfolk meant that the women often stayed home alone for a long time. And I'm not talking about, honey, I'm going to be back late from the office this evening either. Here we're talking about, honey, I'm off. See you sometime in the next few years. They lived alone with their children, fearing the day when their husbands would come back and take their sons away with them as soon as they were old enough. Venice was a city full of white widows. One of these was the wife of a merchant by the name of Niccolò Polo, to whom history hasn't even given a name. Some English sources I found mention the name Nicole Anna de Fuset, 
However, Nicole is a name that has only recently come into the Italian language from English and no published biographies seem to mention the poor woman's name. We know that she died sometime before 1269, possibly as early as 1254, when she gave birth to her son, Marco, Marco Polo. I think it is important to mention his family, because the story of Marco Polo is not the story of one man, but that of a family, starting with his father and uncles. We don't know how much time Marco was given with his mother, but we do know that his father, Nicolò, was absent for much of his infancy and adolescence. Where was he? Off in the Far East. The East was a mystery for Europe at the time, although there had been contact with China since antiquity. For many people, the East was populated by man-eating monsters and humans with their heads in their chests. The 13th century in the East was that of Genghis Khan, the great Mongol horde known as the Tartars, who, by the 1240s, were about to crash upon Europe, but were stopped only by the death of the great Khan Odende, son of Genghis, and the subsequent succession crisis. Having ascertained the impossibility of a military victory against the Mongols, Pope Innocent IV started with the idea of missionaries. He first chose a man who St. Francis had sent around the Mediterranean, Giovanni da Pian del Carpine, who left in April of 1245. The only real success of his two-year voyage was convincing the Mongols not to send a delegation to the West, as they would then see how weak the rest really was and be sorely tempted by another invasion. This was just one example of the many religious men who travelled east, often risking rather nasty deaths, such as being flayed alive. While the papacy was chucking monks towards the east, Venice would soon be sending merchants. The brothers Nicolò and Matteo, or Mafio as they said in Venetian, were operating, as many Venetians were, out of Constantinople. They were among the lucky ones to see that things in Constantinople were not looking good. Aside from the growing influence of their arch-rivals Genoa, in 1261 the Byzantine Michael Paleologus reconquered Constantinople and started a campaign of killings and requisitions against the Venetians, with many being killed and others having land and property confiscated. Venice would sign a peace treaty only four years later, but by 1261, the Polos had already left town. They had joined their elder brother, Marco Senior, in Sudak, Crimea, and from there, by pointing in that direction, why not continue east? Also because there was some infighting among the Khans in the Mongol Empire to the north, what was known as the Golden Horde. They reached the court of the great Kublai Khan, grandson of Genghis Khan, and in line with his fondness for foreigners and distrust of some of his own subjects, he took quite a liking to the Polo brothers. He was quite interested in the Christian faith, perhaps not so much from a spiritual point of view, but for the significance that such a hierarchical religion could have on the management of power. 
Also, his mum was quite a devout Christian. Therefore, when the two brothers were ready to leave, the great Khan gave them letters for the Pope, requesting he send 100 Christian scholars to the East and also ask for some lamp oil from the Holy Land for his mother. Upon his return to Venice, Nicola found a teenage son and a missing wife. He quickly remarried, stayed long enough to get his new wife pregnant, and then took Marco and left again. They were tired of hanging around waiting for the Pope to receive them. This is because there was no Pope. They had arrived in the interregnum that had been craftily extended by Charles of Anjou. They headed off to the Holy Land to get the oil for the Khan, and while there they met Bishop Teobaldo Visconti in Acre and commiserated with him about the lack of a Pope. They then headed off for the East again. While in the Holy Land, Marco first heard and felt the fear of a new sect, the Nizari brand of the Ismaili Muslims, the deadly killers who would use hashish so they could kill without remorse and mercy, from which they took their name, Hashishin, the assassins. They were the ones who, relatively recently, in 1270, had killed the Latin ruler of Tyre, Philip of Montfort, and who would later attempt to kill Prince Edward of England, future Edward I, in June of 1272, who was in the Holy Land at the same time as Marco Polo. It was on this occasion that the legend of Edward's wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, sucking the poison out of his wound, was born. As the Polos were moving from the Holy Land, wouldn't you know it, they were called back by the newly elected Pope Gregory X, who was none other than the Teobaldo Visconti, whom they had met in Acre, who sent them off again with letters for the Khan, and instead of the hundred scholars and priests, he sent two, who didn't actually make it very far along the journey before turning back. So began the journey of Niccolò, Matteo, and Marco Polo to the lands of Kublai Khan, who reigned over the Mongol Empire, stretching from the Caspian Sea to the Pacific Ocean from 1260 to 1294. A journey which would last 24 years, from 1271 to 1295, and see them travel over 15,000 kilometres from home to become a part of the court of the Khan and as well as getting stinking rich. The story is fascinating because it touches upon so many different cultures and histories, the Mongol Empire, China, Japan, Vietnam, India and more. We won't have time to look at everything obviously and we'll limit our time to some highlights and to the more Italian-oriented latter part of Marco Polo's life. You could really make a whole podcast series out of it. Or an original Netflix series, why not? For the moment, we'll leave the Polos ready and raring to start their great journey. Thanks very, very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, the Matilda Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Aaron W., Benjamin Brett W, 
Eric R, Lorenzo, Maddie, Mark L, Mattia, Monica T, Paul A, Sean G, Sean M, Scott Thomas, and YR. The Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony G, Selene, Chanel, Dean V, Eric W, Gordon Z, Greg, Ignazio, Old John in Milwaukee, Caitlin, Kevin, Marxist Leninist Sicilian, Pat K, a new arrival, welcome, 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 Pat, Rene B, Reactionary Venetian, Roberta D, Rodney N, the Question Master, Scott L, Shelby, and Stephen, and the and the tippy top Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri level Sen, Paolo, Lisa K, J W, Andrew M, and Brandon S, and as well as Pat K, I'd also like to welcome to the family Sean G, who I mentioned above. Thanks to one and all for supporting the show. Now's a great time to join. There's lots of extra content. Some features include the sketches, the ones that you hear at the end of some episodes, a feature called News Cappuccino, in which I discuss some current events in Italy and perhaps around the world, or just blab about some various other things, and In the Time It Takes, in which I answer listener questions. Remember, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media. We are on Twitter and on Facebook, and you can go to the support page and get through to the Patreon page or support via PayPal. Thank you very much for those of you who have done so. Thanks again very much to everyone for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.